Well, good to see you guys. God bless you. And can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. And uh, that's where we find ourselves this evening in our through the Bible study in 1 John chapter 2, we've, where John has just finished telling us that the blood of Jesus Christ has satisfied, that's what propitiation means, has satisfied the righteousness of God and allowed him to show mercy to sinners everywhere. Verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, as, as we said last time, by saying this, uh, John is not teaching universalism. Uh, that Jesus' blood shed in Calvary's cross automatically saves everybody. He's not teaching that. He is teaching that Jesus' blood paid the price for everyone's sins and made it possible, made it possible for all men and women to be saved. But it's not automatic. It's not automatic. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So believing in Jesus and receiving him as your Savior, that's what is involved in receiving eternal life. Jesus paid for it. It's a free gift. He's offering it to the people of this world. But like any gift that somebody offers you, you have to reach out and receive it if you're going to benefit from it. And that's what the idea is all about. Now, in this section, John is going to spend a lot of time bringing forth something that really he um, picked up, if I could put it that way, he learned from his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, something that Jesus taught, a uh, very important thing. In fact, we've been teaching uh, it or, you know, uh, talking about it on Sunday in our study through John's Gospel, and that is that not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. Now, Jesus taught that, and so did the other apostles, by the way, but in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So obviously there are some who call him Lord, uh, go to church, no doubt, and believe on some level, but are not going to be going to heaven. He tells us that right here. Of course, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, we read, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. Okay, well, these Jews believed, Jewish leaders. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. We said that the Greek word there means truly, implying that some of his so-called disciples weren't really truly his disciples. He had a lot of followers. They all considered themselves his disciples. But Jesus didn't consider all of them his true disciples. And every once in a while, he tried to challenge them to examine their hearts to make sure they were following him for the right reasons. Now, of course, this begs the question, how can a person know if they're truly saved or not? Is there any test or criterion by which a person can know if they are truly one of Jesus' disciples or are just 
deceiving themselves? That's a very important question. Because we don't want to wind up like one of those that Jesus warned about this very issue in Matthew 7. We read verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, listen, practice lawlessness. That last statement of Jesus is the one that John seems to be keying in on now in his first epistle. That Jesus warned that not everyone, and I'll paraphrase, who went to church, called him Lord, was involved in ministry, is going to be going to heaven. Why not? Because those that practiced sin indicated they weren't really genuine Christians. And so John picks up on that. So much of 1 John, uh, in many ways, amplifies some of the parts of John's gospel that Jesus brought forth some uh, principles. Then John, in his first epistle, kind of elaborates a little bit. And uh, he's picking up on this statement by Jesus that not all faith is saving faith that um, those that practice lawlessness, uh, well, they won't be going to heaven. And he wants now to drive that home by telling us basically that one of the surest tests as to the validity of a person's salvation is this very thing. He tells us that those who practice sin, sometimes he says unrighteousness or lawlessness, but he's telling us those who practice sin demonstrate that they are not saved. Listen, no matter how religious they are, no matter how often they attend church, no matter how many of the ceremonies and rituals that they adhere to with regard to whatever church group they belong to, and I'm talking about Christian churches, you can go to church every day of the week, but if you're living in sin, practicing sin, the idea is on a regular basis, we all sin, obviously, we're not perfect. But he's talking about a lifestyle, all right? Although John starts out his remarks on this subject by stating it in the positive. He doesn't say those who practice sin don't know him. He says in verse 3, those that know him practice righteousness. Keep the commandments, all right? Keep his commandments. Those that know him, verse 3... Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Uh, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Guys, we all know this, and I just have to say it again. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, all right? There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and then knowing Jesus. We can know a lot about some famous figure, say like President Donald Trump, and still not know him personally. There are those people that are experts in historical figures like George Washington, who have never known George Washington personally. They know a lot about him. Well, the same goes for a lot of people who have grown up in church. They all their lives will say they've gone to church, Awanas. Sunday school, all of that, they know an awful lot about Jesus, about him as, a, as a, an historical figure, a, a lot about him uh, from a theological standpoint, 
but they don't really know him personally. And guys, this is basically the difference between religion and relationship. It's not that hard to figure out. That's what uh, John is getting at. That's what Jesus was alluding to when he talked about, you know, uh, you know, knowing him, abiding in him, all right? When John said, by this we know that we know him, he wasn't talking about a casual knowledge. Again, like the average churchgoer who knows about Jesus. He was talking about a deep, intimate knowledge, the kind that we read about in Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore him a son. Obviously, that's a lot deeper knowledge than just knowing somebody, okay? A um, lot deeper knowledge than, than that. It's a very deep, intimate, personal knowledge that speaks of two people becoming one with each other, like a husband and wife, and the physical act of sex becoming one. Uh, as the Bible talks about that, God actually designed it that way to represent the oneness, uh, on a physical level, to represent the oneness that has taken place emotionally, the two becoming one. The same thing is true with uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ, that there are those who, again, know him casually, know him from Sunday school, but don't really know him, don't have that kind of a close, personal, intimate relationship like a, a husband has with his wife. That's a whole different level of knowledge. Now, I do think that, in part, John is talking in this way because he wants to slam the Gnostics, who are always going around, and that's one of the groups he was coming against in this, through this epistle. But they were always going around teaching people that they knew God more deeply than anybody, and if you wanted to really know God, you had to get into their group, practice their meditation, learn how to do spiritual things their way, because only then could you know the deeper things of God. They claimed they had a deeper understanding and relationship with God than even the apostles had. And John is basically slamming that idea. He said, look, when you know Jesus, when you're saved, he's one with you. He lives inside of you through the Holy Spirit. You can't get any deeper with regard to knowledge than that. That's a oneness that marriage speaks of when two people, husband and wife, come together, uh, you know, in the physical act of lovemaking. We can know somebody casually and not really know them. There's a lot of folks who know Jesus casually but don't really know him, and they're not saved. I had religion for 25 years of my life, and then I got saved. And it's a whole different thing, right? It's a whole different ballgame. I knew a lot about Jesus. There was a lot of right stuff. I just didn't really know him personally until I received him as my Lord and Savior into my heart. Now, John tells us, guys, that this becomes the litmus test. The litmus test that determines if a person is genuinely one with Jesus, in other words, saved, is whether or not they continue in his commandments. The word keep in verses 3 and 4 is in the present tense in the Greek and denotes a continuous action. Continues to keep. A lifestyle of keeping God's commandments. And notice that John doesn't say, now by this we think. <laughs> or we're, we're pretty sure. No, he says now by this we know that we know him, that we're sure we're saved if we keep his commandments. Now let me just again say this. I have to, because 
so many people, not you guys, but so many people have a wrong understanding of salvation. If they would read this, they would interpret it this way. If you keep my commandments, well, you'll become my people. You'll, you'll be saved. You'll know me. Keeping Jesus' commandments doesn't earn you your salvation. It's a, a manifestation that you already know him. Don't get it backwards. Our culture has gotten it backwards when it comes to spiritual things. If we do certain things, we will know him. We will earn salvation. No, the Bible says you receive it by uh, faith. It's a gift. And once you receive it, certain things begin to happen. And one of those things is you begin, because the Spirit of God is inside your heart now, you begin to want to live for God and do God's command. You want to keep God's commandments. That's a, that's a sign that Jesus is in you through the Holy Spirit, not earning you anything. It's a fruit, right, as we have talked about. The idea here, guys, and that what is John is stressing is assurance. It's the idea of assurance, knowing without a doubt that we have a real relationship with Jesus Christ and are genuinely saved. As one author put it, assurance comes from obeying God's commandments in Scripture. Those who fail to do so will and should wonder if they are converted and the Holy Spirit is truly leading them. But obedient believers can be assured that they have come to know Christ. And, and you know, there are carnal Christians, okay? There are. I don't believe a carnal Christian loses their salvation. But what they do lose is the assurance of their salvation. Therefore, they're always wondering, are they really saved? They're always walking around with this guilt and condemnation because maybe they've lost their salvation because they haven't been faithful. The best way to handle that is just get your life right with God. All right? Get serious. And then you'll know for sure. But the issue that John is bringing, you know, the issue that he's bringing up here is assurance. Whether we're talking about our relationship with Jesus, whether or not it's genuine, uh, or we're trying to determine if some other professing Christian's relationship with Jesus is genuine. And be careful with that. We're not to go around, as Jesus said in the parable of the um, tares, that you know there are in any church uh, true Christians and false Christians. But then there are carnal Christians. And the carnal Christians can look like unbelievers in the church. So it's not up to us to go around and weed out all those that we think aren't saved because we don't know the heart. And sometimes a person's, you know, they haven't had time to really grow. And they're very carnal. And uh, we could do great damage to their walk with the Lord by just ripping them out of the church and, and get rid of them. Because in our minds, because they aren't le living up to some level of holiness or obedience, well, they must not be saved, and we got to get rid of them. But I do think the Lord calls us to be fruit inspectors in some ways. You'll know them by their fruit. Because as Paul said, you know, there are folks in the church you need to teach, instruct, correct, even rebuke with all long-suffering and doctrine. And to do that, we have to make a determination based on what we're seeing and the way of fruit coming forth in their lives. I can't say they're saved or not saved, but at very least, if they are saved, they're living carnally. And that's something that we need to challenge them on and help them if they maybe need a little somebody to come alongside and, and, and help them be accountable come to church. Uh, hey, you need a ride. You know, I mean, I've 
Haven't seen you at church much. I know. I've been having a hard time, you know, getting the energy to come out. Well, how did I pick you up? And just, you know, keep somebody accountable. Help them, right? But whether we're talking about our walk, and the Bible does say examine ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith, okay? Or maybe another professing Christian that we're a little worried about. uh, How do we know if we or they are really born again? Well, Again, John gives us, I think, a very good test as to whether or not the individual is, you know, is saved or not. What is that test? By, you know, are they living in continual obedience to God's word and his commandments? Again, John is telling us that the surest test of legitimacy, the legitimacy of a person's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, is are they continuing, not, again, not perfect, but are they continuing to walk in the light of God's truth, obey his commandments. Do they want to live for the Lord? Uh, is living an obedient, holy life important to them? Now, back in 1 John 2, verse 5, John said, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Guys, keeping his word, verse 5, keeping his commandments, verse 3, is the same as walking in the light, chapter 1, verse 7. And John is kind of hitting these, these things, you know, this idea of, of obedience and abiding from different angles. But um, this walking in the light is the one he introduced early and then reinforces it with different statements that basically say the same thing in different ways. Uh, Warren Worsby said something important on this subject. Let me quote it, read it to you. He said, and I quote, To walk in the light means to be honest with God, with ourselves, and with others. It means that when the light reveals our sin, and he's talking about coming to church and hearing the word of God taught, okay? Uh, The light. When we hear it taught, it convicts us, he said. It reveals our sin to us. We immediately confess it to God and claim his forgiveness. And if our sin injures another person, we ask his forgiveness too. But walking in the light means something else. It means obeying God's word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. Words be said, to walk in the light means to spend time daily in God's word, discovering his will and then obeying what he has told us. Obedience to God's word is proof of our love for him. There are three motives for obedience. We can obey because we have to because we need to, and then because we want to. A slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey, he will be punished. An employee obeys because he needs to. He may not enjoy his work, but he does enjoy getting his paycheck. (laughs) He needs to obey because he has a family and to feed and clothe. But a Christian is to obey his heavenly Father because he wants to. For the relationship between him and God is one of love. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments, end quote. And again, in verse 5, guys, John is pushing the idea of assurance. Whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. You see, again, John knew, and I believe this, that John knew that Satan couldn't rob a Christian of their salvation. So because he can't take your salvation from you, I believe that's eternal. Once you give your heart to Christ, I believe you're a child of God forever. And because Satan can't take your salvation from you, he then tries to do the next 
best thing, which is to steal the assurance of your salvation from you. And of course, he does that through carnality, compromise, selfishness, pride, just getting you to live more for the world and the flesh than for the Spirit of God. Now, in verse 6, he says, He who abides in him, in Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he, as Jesus, walked. Guys, the concept of abiding is a major theme in John's writings. It occurs 41 times in his gospel and 26 times in his epistles, 24 of those times in 1 John alone. So this is a concept that's very important, uh, not only to John, but to Jesus, but ultimately to you and I. The Greek word he uses for abiding is meno, which means to dwell or to remain or to continue. This will become very important when we come to verse 19 in a month or so. No, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Come on, we're just having a little fun now. All right. um, but ver verse 19, that is going to be a very pivotal concept, and it will have a lot of practical implications. We'll get to it when we get there. But um, <laughs> again, this concept was very important to John. You know why? Because it was very important to Jesus. Because Jesus knew it was important to us. Uh, turn to John 15. Let's read just a portion of what Jesus said uh, in John 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You, you can read the whole discourse on your own. Very important discourse that Jesus taught them en route to the Mount of Olives, where he would spend the remainder of the night in prayer into the morning before he was arrested and then brought to stand before uh, Caiaphas and then Pilate before he was crucified. So some of his final teaching before the cross and I would imagine you know if you're on your deathbed and you only have a short time left uh, to speak to your loved ones you're not going to talk about sports or the weather you're going to sum up what's most important to you what's most important to them and you're going to give them a very concise but extremely important little few sentences or a small discourse to drive an important truth home because you haven't got much time left. Abiding in Jesus. Very important concept. What is it? Well, it's synonymous with having a close, intimate, ongoing relationship with him in the practice of our daily walk. So it's a, a daily thing, abiding in him. This closeness and intimacy, if it's there, not all Christians have a close, intimate relationship with, on a practical level. But many do. And if uh, a Christian has that kind of a closeness with the Lord, where they're really walking in the Spirit and abiding in Christ daily, not, not only will it be manifested in their obedience to the Word of God, as we have just said, but also in following the example of Jesus. See, he makes that point in the Gospels, and John's bringing it out here, that when you have this, you're, when you're abiding in Christ, Yes, you're going to want to keep the commandments of God. That will be something that will characterize your life. But not only that, 
you'll also want to emulate uh, and follow Jesus' example in everything. Remember, Jesus said, I just picked out a couple that really indicate where his heart was on this subject. He said, I do always those things that please my Father. Think about that. I do always. Now, the Lord Jesus never did anything that didn't please his Father. We, unfortunately, can't say that. But that should be the goal. I do always those things that please the Father. And guys, if that's ever going to become a reality in our lives, it has to be something right now in our hearts we purpose, we want to do. Uh, you know, Ezra, it says of Ezra, uh, he was a scribe, very godly man. But it says, I think Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra purposed in his heart to seek the Lord. Daniel in Babylon, he could have said, look, I'm a long way from Jerusalem. And the temple of God was just wiped out anyways. When in Rome, right? I could just do as the Romans. He didn't feel that way. And when the king wanted Daniel and his three friends to eat of the king's delicacies, the meat had been offered to idols and things like that. Uh, it says Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's food, but would stay faithful to his God. Look, long before you ever carry out things, you have to purpose them in your heart. Paul purposed in his heart where he was going to go for the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. Now, God often would uh, redirect him, that's fine. But every godly life has to be uh, start with a purpose. And the purpose is, I want to do God's will. I want to only do those things that please my Father. Jesus said later on, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You will never be able to come to the end of your Christian life like Paul, who said, I have fought the good fight, I have uh, finished the race, that, that kind of thing, right? Kept the faith, finished the race. If you don't purpose in your heart right now, and every day, really, that you want to put God first and only live to fulfill the work he's called you to do. In 1 John 2, verse 6, once again, John said, He who says he abides in him, he who says he's saved, ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. Anyone who says I'm a Christian ought to prove it by walking, following Jesus and what, how he lived. All right, Didn't he say that in John 10? My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? Follow me. That's always the sign. I remember a pastor gave the illustration. He said, say you're walking down one side of the street. On the other side, you see a man walking, and right behind him is a little dog following very close behind him. And as the man walks, so does the little dog walk, right behind him. What would you assume? Probably that that man is the dog's master, right? But then all of a sudden, the man turns on a side street, but the little dog keeps going straight. Now you realize that that dog did not consider that man his master. Why? Because if he had, he would have followed him. I don't know where a lot of Christians are going. I know they're not following Jesus. I mean, you know, we have all kinds of things today that people claim God told them to do, places God told them to go, different things that they're involved in that they believe God told them to, you know, be involved in. 
And uh, a lot of it, you know, uh, homosexual issues or marching for abortion, you know, to keep it legal and so on. A lot of these folks truly believe they are following Jesus, but they're not going where he's going. And so we have to know from his word what the word says, because if you're truly saved, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. You're going to follow the word of God, right? And uh, again, guys, if we abide in him, we will behave like him is the bottom line. Now, back in 1 John 2, verse 7, John said, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. Uh, the old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, you read that, and it sounds like John is giving us some doublespeak. Okay? Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. A little later on, brethren, I write a new commandment to you. And it's like, well, what are you talking And he says, you know, he says, I, 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 brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment. Then he talks about, well, I'm writing a new commandment. What commandment, all right, is John talking about? And how is this commandment both old and new at the same time? The commandment is old in the sense that Christians in John's day had heard it preached to them their entire Christian lives. So in that regard, it wasn't new to them. They had been hearing this commandment ever since they had gotten saved. And John knows that. But it was new in the sense that Jesus called it new when he gave it to his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Turn to John 13. So this commandment was old in the sense that these Christians had heard it all their Christian lives. But it was new in that Jesus called it new. In John 13, verses 34 and 5, he said... A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, as we have talked about this in the past, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses contained 613 commandments. 248 were positive, things that they were commanded to do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? 365 were negative. Things that God commanded them, they were not to do. You shall not worship uh, a false god. You shall not do this or that. So 365 thou shalt nots, one for every day of the year, pretty much. But what do you do with all these commandments? Most Jews didn't even know them all, let alone could ever begin to live them all. Turn to Matthew 22. Jesus comes to the rescue. What do you do with 613 commandments in the law? Well, in Matthew 22, because the running debate, guys, uh, back then, the Pharisees, scribes, other religious sects of Judaism, they argued for years and years and years which of the 613 were the greatest, which one was the greatest, right? And so they finally brought to Jesus... Uh, verse 35, Matthew 22. Then one of them, a lawyer, watch out for them lawyers, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first. The Greek is the supreme commandment, the great commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here the Lord, the Lord Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And then from Leviticus 19, verse 18, these verses holding them up as the first and second greatest commandments, both of them, both of them are commandments to love. So guys, the commandment to love others was nothing new. But here in John 13, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. The word new does not mean new in time. Since God had commanded people, his people, to love others in the Old Testament before Jesus came on the scene. So that was nothing new there in time chronology. This Greek word, though, means new in experience, fresh. You see, it was love, which was not new, but a different kind of love, a different way of loving. The concept of love, loving others, was not new. But the way Jesus now defines it is. This was going to be a fresh understanding, right? Uh, new in experience. This command for the disciples to love one another was new because it was built, listen, on a new principle and energized by a new power. The new principle. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, what? As I have loved you. In the Old Testament, guys, God had commanded his people to love others as they love themselves. What makes this command new is that Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other as he loved them. How did Jesus love them? How did Jesus love any of us? Well, of course, he went to the cross and died for us. Went to the cross and died. Turn to John 15. John 15, verse 12. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to love one another, by going to the cross, not literally, of course, but figuratively, and dying for one another. That's what's new about his command to love. You see, yeah, the Old Testament is filled with commandments and exhortations to love. But here, Jesus makes everything new when he says, Love one another as I have loved you. In other words, the Old Testament said, love others as you love yourself, as much as you love yourself. I'm telling you to love others more than you love yourself, to esteem them of greater value than yourself. It's hard enough for a natural man or woman, unsaved, to love others. Of course, their family they could and those closest to them. It's very difficult, though, for them to love others as they love themselves because we're all selfish by nature. And, and really, uh, we can do it with a few people close to us, right? But for the vast majority of people that unbelievers come in contact with over the course of their lifetime, I would imagine that not many love them even as much as they love themselves. Jesus comes with a radical new concept. He said, don't love them just like you love yourself, as much as you love yourself. Love them more. Well, what does that mean? Love them like I've loved you. How is that, Lord? 
I'm going to go to the cross and die for you. And that's how you're supposed to love one another. It starts in marriage, in the home. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Guys, the newness and the fullness of this new commandment is that we are to love in a way that costs us our lives. Not just emotionally, that's Hollywood's love, right? It's all emotions. But we're to love each other. Paul says it starts in the home with the way husbands who represent Christ love their wives. How did Christ love us, his bride? He died for us. How are we men supposed to love our wives? We're supposed to die for them. In other words, put them first. Love them more than we love ourselves. That's where it starts. And then, of course, hopefully the wives reciprocate by respecting their husbands the way uh, they respect the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that they submit to him and submit to your husbands because that's, you know, husbands, sacrifice yourself for your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is the uh, groundwork for a healthy marriage and a good, strong society because it starts with the family. Guys, let me just say this. Biblically, there is never true reconciliation apart from someone or something dying. And again, going back to what Jesus said uh, the night before the cross and what Paul says here in Ephesians 5.25, uh, again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. He died for her that we might be reconciled to God. There's a very important idea that is being touched on here. And that is that biblically there is never any true reconciliation apart from someone or something dying. Now in the Old Testament, reconciliation with God was only possible if animals died. And then it was only temporary until you sinned again. But in the old uh, economy, uh, reconciliation with God was not possible unless an animal was sacrificed. An animal died. In the New Testament, we see Old Testament typology become a reality with the death of the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who had to die for us to be reconciled to God. But of course, in a less dramatic way, this has to happen if we're going to be reconciled to one another or family or whatever. We've got to die. One pastor, I think, put it well. He said, and I quote, There will never be true reconciliation between you and the person with whom you're angry or from whom you're estranged until you say, I'm not going to grind my axe any longer. I'm not going to press my point any farther. I'm not going to prove I'm right anymore. I'm just going to die. The question is, will you? But I'm innocent, you say. So was Jesus. But I'm right. Wasn't he? The commandment he gave us to die is to our pride, our complaints, our position, our proof. Someone would say, well, what if I do die? Does laying down my life and giving up my rights guarantee reconciliation? Was everyone reconciled to Jesus when he died? No. Not everyone is born again. Not everyone says, thank you, Lord, for laying down your life for me. When you love like Jesus, some will respond and there will be reconciliation. Others, however, will continue to spit and curse and mock, even as they did to Jesus, as he was in the very act of dying for their sins. But if we are to love as Jesus loved, like him, we'll pray, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing, end quote. The problem today, guys, and this is, I'm 
the world, forget about it. The world's got a lot of its problems. I'm talking about in the church now. One of the problems in the church today is that we're letting Hollywood define love for us. Now, we know what the Bible says. It's one thing to know what God's Word says. It's another thing, what we have in our own hearts and what we you know, operate under, okay? We're letting Hollywood, as the Church of Jesus Christ, define love for us, which again, for Hollywood, it's all about feelings. So if you marry somebody because you love them, quote-unquote, but eventually they stop making you feel good about yourself, well, your happiness is really all that matters. So dump them and find somebody else to love, quote-unquote, who will make you happy again. It's all about your feelings, though. But God's love is not feelings-oriented. It's action-oriented. In fact, that's how we can even love our enemies, as he has commanded us to love. Turn to Matthew 5. And we have touched on this not too long ago, on Sunday morning, I believe. So I won't belabor the point, but let me read to you what Jesus had to say about loving people. He said in verse 43 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the fields of the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. In other words, it's easy to love people who love you. Any unbeliever can do that. But God wants us to love those who are even our enemies. Well, how can I do that? I don't have any feelings for them. But that's the problem. We're not getting our definitions of these concepts from the scriptures many times. We're getting them from the world at large. How can I love my enemy? I don't have any feelings for them. You don't need feelings to love your enemies. If they have a need, meet it. If they need some kindness from you, show it. You don't have to have any feelings to do that. I will tell you this, though. If you do that, you start showing kindness to an enemy, feelings will start to come. It's interesting how that happens. Most people wait for the feelings, and then they want to act. Well, when I feel like it, you, know, you see this in marriage a lot. Well, you know, when she starts... Uh, talking better to me, and I feel like it, I'll start treating her better. Well, you know, you know, that's not how it works. We don't feel first and then act. We act first, and then God says you'll feel. The Greek word for love, of course, here in Matthew 5 and in the First John is the word agape. And Paul, of course, defines agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. Please turn there. I spent just a few minutes on this because this is the basis for the rest of John's epistle first epistle it's all about love and uh, it's agape love is the idea but paul defines agape love is god's love okay and uh, paul defines agape love in first corinthians 13 starting with verse 4 let me read it love suffers long and is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself is not puffed up Lo uh, love does not behave rudely does not seek its own is not provoked thinks no evil Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As we have pointed out in the past, all of those are verbs. All of those that are, you know, love is this, love is, 
They're all verbs in the Greek because love, God's love is an action. It's not a feeling. Feelings will accompany, as I said, but that's not the basis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He did something. John is admonishing us to love others the way Jesus loved us. Now, here's a little something my pastor did many years ago. I've never forgotten it. He says, okay, here's the definition of God's love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. Now, put Jesus' name in there. See how it reads. All right. Jesus suffers long in this kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. He is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Wow. It's perfect, isn't it? Now put your name in there. See how that sounds. Phil suffers long in his kind. <laughs> Phil does not envy. Phil does not parade himself. I can't even go on. It's blasphemous. <laughs> now, but of course, Jesus is the goal. We, we, we look to Jesus to, in, to want to emulate him, but okay. So you know, if you think we're getting close to being a real loving person, just stick your name in 1 Corinthians 13. And then you'll come away, you'll be humbled, and that's good, okay? That's, that's the test. Look, guys, um, loving people as God commands, with his agape love, is impossible for us. It's impossible for us. It's beyond our ability. Uh, this is not a love I can generate or imitate. It's a love that only comes from him. Uh, we, we don't have it within us. It's not natural love. And so Jesus commands us to love others with agape love, but that's impossible. Why would Jesus command me to do something that's impossible? Well, he wouldn't. Anything God commands us to do, especially that which is impossible, he always supplies the power for us to do it. So the man who was lame, right, 38 years, pool of Bethesda, Jesus walks up to him and says, um, do you want to be made well? Well, Lord, every time, you know, the waters are troubled by the angel, I try to get... Jesus didn't ask him, you know, why aren't you well? He just said, do you want to be well? And then what did he say? Rise, take up your bed and walk. The guy's been lame 38 years. That's an impossible command. But don't you know, if we will will to do God's will... He will at that moment supply the power to do his will, and we will do the impossible. Lord, can I come on the sea and walk toward you? Come. That's all Peter needed to hear. He stepped out in faith, and the power was given to him to walk on to do the impossible. Now, the other guys in the boat, they were putting Peter down for being such a blowhard, you know. Oh, Peter, you know, you're always putting your foot in your mouth. Well, you know what? At least Peter took a step in faith. He got out of the comfort zone of the boat, and for a little while, okay, he failed, but for a little while, he did the impossible and walked on water. He's the only one of those guys who knew what that was, experience was like. The rest of those guys played it safe and stayed in the boat. That's Christianity for the vast majority of Christians. 
putting other people down that want to step out in faith but stay in, in their comfort zone. Because I can't do that. Sure you can't. Who told you you could? But if God says to do it, and you step out by faith and will to do his will, he'll give you the power. But you got a will to do God's will, right? Look, the power is ours, okay? I want you to love your enemies with my love. Oh, that's impossible, Lord. Well, it's not impossible because I'm giving you the power to do it. And the power is ours by virtue of the Holy Spirit living within us when we got saved. And as we abide in Christ, it allows the fruit of the Holy Spirit to grow in our lives. And listen, the first one on the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 3 is God's agape love. Romans 5, verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us in the ideas at the moment of salvation. Guys, it's through our abiding in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us that this kind of love can become a reality in our lives. Listen, to touch others around us. And that is the idea. Why does God fill us with his love? That we just be reservoirs and just keep it to ourselves? No, he wants us to be channels through which the Spirit's power and love can flow to a love-starved, hurting world. God's love. Verse 8, again a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Listen, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. One pastor had this to say on that last portion of verse 8. Obviously the true light is Jesus Christ. John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. The true light is Jesus Christ who has come and inaugurated his kingdom in which he and this new dimension of love is already shining. With the inauguration of Messiah's spiritual kingdom, the true light began shining and overcoming the darkness of Satan's kingdom. Right now, the light coexists with the darkness, but the light and the divine love he bears will increasingly dispel the darkness, shine ever brighter during Christ's millennial reign, and eventually rule supremely throughout eternity where only God's love will be there, not anything of Satan. The light he bears will increasingly dispel the darkness, shine ever brighter during Christ's millennial reign, and eventually rule supremely throughout eternity. Thus, it is only because believers have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, the light, that this new commandment is a reality in their lives. It's all about what Jesus did. And so with the first coming of Jesus, the light of God began to dispel the darkness. Remember how John opened his gospel? John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, Jesus Christ, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. As the light of God's truth, the gospel, was preached in Jesus' day down through the centuries to our present day, as the gospel, the light of God is preached, people embrace it, and as they do, they become new creations in Christ. They become a point of light. You are the light of the world, Jesus said to his disciples. And the more points of light you have, every time a person receives Christ, they become a point of light. And the more lights, the more who receive Christ, 
the brighter God's kingdom becomes and the uh, darker Satan's kingdom uh, becomes, or shrinks, I should say. It's already dark. Um, so the, the more God's kingdom expands, the people getting saved, the light, well, the more Satan's kingdom shrinks. Author William MacDonald said, The darkness has not all vanished because many have not come to Christ, but Christ, the true light, is already shining. And whenever sinners turn to him, they are saved and henceforth love their fellow believers. And that really is what John is driving home. That's what he's talking about. Look at verses 9 and 10. We'll end with those. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Guys, listen to me. This is what John is saying. The distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian isn't wearing a giant cross, a Christian t-shirt. When I got saved, that, those were real popular. Everybody. Uh, all the young guys wore Christian t-shirts. Okay? And we had, I had a whole closet full of Christian t-shirts. Okay? Uh, bumper stickers were very popular. Those would identify you maybe as a Christian, but didn't prove you were a Christian. You called yourself one. The distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian isn't wearing a cross or a Christian t-shirt or carrying a Bible or even going to church. The true mark of a Christian, listen, is love and especially loving other Christians. When I was going through some of my old notes preparing this message for tonight, I came across a true story that I had included about 15 years ago in a message I gave. And I thought it was so powerful, I wanted to read it to you tonight, and we'll close, okay? Uh, because the whole thing is about true Christians love each other in spite of what other Christians have done to them, okay? Or have done to them before they were even Christians. Let me read this to you. A young man cowered in the corner of a dirty roach-infested death row cell in South Carolina prison. His body curled in a fetal position. He seemed oblivious to the filth and stench around him. His name was Rusty, and he was sentenced to die for the murder of a Myrtle Beach woman uh, in a crime spree that left four people dead. Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Wellborn from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1979, following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Bob McAllister, deputy chief of staff to South Carolina's governor, became acquainted uh, with Rusty on death row. Bob had become a Christian a year or so earlier and felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those spending their last days on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor where he, when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the roaches who scurried over everything, including Rusty himself. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk, but did not respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him the love Jesus had for him and of his opportunity, even on death row, to start a new life in Christ. 
He talked and prayed continuously, and finally Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. A little by little he opened up until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day, Rusty Wellborn, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean and so was Rusty. He had renewed energy and a positive outlook on life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with him. The two men became close friends over the next five years. In fact, McAllister said that Rusty grew into, grew into the son he never had. As for Rusty, he had taken to calling McAllister Pap. Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been anything but heaven. His family was destitute, and the Rusty was neglected and abused as a, as a youngster. School was an ordeal both for him and for his teachers. Throughout his junior high years, he wore the same two pair of pants and two ragged shirts. Out of shame, frustration, and the lack of adult guidance, Rusty quit school in his ninth grade year, a decision that was to be just the beginning of his troubles. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of his home many times and ran away countless others. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. Bob taught Rusty the Bible, but Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. This young man, who had never known real love, was amazed and thrilled about the love of God. He never ceased to be surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus Christ. Rusty's childhood enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob, who came to realize how much he had taken for granted, especially with regard to the love of his own family and friends. In time, Rusty became extremely bothered by the devastating pain he had caused the family and friends of his victim. Knowing that God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted the forgiveness of those he had wronged. Then a most significant thing happened. The brother of the woman Rusty had murdered became a Christian. God had dealt with him for two years about his need to forgive his sister's killer. Finally, he wrote Rusty a letter that offered him not only forgiveness but the love of Christ. Not long before his scheduled execution, this brother and his wife came to visit Rusty. Bob was present when the two men met and tearfully embraced like long-lost brothers, finally reunited. Rusty's senseless crime ten years earlier had constructed an enormous barrier between himself and the brother. The love of Christ obliterated that barrier and enabled both men to realize that because of Jesus, they truly were brothers reunited on that day. It was a lesson that Bob McAllister would not forget. Not only did Rusty teach Bob McAllister how to love and forgive, he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm and assurance like Bob had never seen. On his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked McAllister to read him to read to him from the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of his cot and said, you know, the only thing I've ever wanted was a home, Pap, and now I'm going to get one. Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. Thinking he had fallen asleep, 
Bob placed the blanket over him and closed the Bible. As he turned to leave, he felt a strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on the forehead. A short time later, Rusty Wellborn was executed for murder. A woman assisting Rusty in his last moments shared a postscript to the story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame that a man's got to wait till his last night on earth alive to be kissed and tucked into bed for the first time. End quote. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Rusties in our country. Young men and women who have grown up broken homes, on the streets, turning tricks, stealing, people that, young people that society would rather be rid of. Nobody wants these kids. Nobody has a heart to reach these kids. But God loves them. God loves these kids. And older folks too. Look at how the love of God working through one man, Bob McAllister, reached out and changed a murderer into a son of God. And look at how the love of God working through a victim's brother, a man whose sister was murdered, but extended love and forgiveness to an enemy who then became a dear friend a brother in Christ. Guys, the world can't understand this kind of love. It is so foreign to the natural, unsaved person. It's supernatural love. It's the love of God. And the devil knows there is no more powerful force in the universe than God's love being demonstrated to a lost and dying and hurting and broken world. So what does he want to do? He wants to get you to move away from God, the source of love, the power of love, and as you move away from God through carnality, through sin, your fellowship is broken and the love begins to dry up. As long as we abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit, well, God's love will flow through us and make a difference in the lives of those around us. But if we move away from the Lord and stop abiding in Christ, the flesh will rise up and self-love will begin to dominate once again. In fact, as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it will be something that will characterize the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves. Self-love will be on the rise to a level we have probably never seen in the world until that time. Self-love chokes out God's love in a person's heart every time. But don't let it. Don't let it. There's too much at stake. There's too many people who need God's love, who need to be loved into God's kingdom. And that's where we come in. Oh, but I can't do it. Of course you can't do it. You don't have the ability to do it. I don't. That's what we need to abide in Christ. And let the Spirit love them through us. Our responsibility, stay close to the Lord. Walk in the Spirit. Do what you're supposed to do to stay in the word, to stay in fellowship, to stay close to the Lord. He'll do the rest. You abide in him, the Spirit of God will take it from there. And he will give you everything you need to fulfill every ministry he is calling you to because it's all supernatural. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe and Satan knows it. 
And as somebody has said, nobody, nobody can be neutral when they are demonstrated agape love. They'll run or they'll fall to their knees broken, but they can't be neutral. It's too powerful. So may God give us grace to walk in the spirit and to realize that the world out there full of these broken, hurting people that most want to just get rid of, that God says, those are the ones I want you to reach out to. They need my love, and you're my representatives. And go into all the world and show people what I'm like by loving them with my love. May God give us grace. We need it. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. And we know, Lord, your word says that when we got saved, the Holy Spirit poured your agape love into our hearts. The problem is we often, Lord, become selfish and self-centered, where self-love rises up and chokes out your love. Can a Christian be selfish? Yes. Can a Christian be carnal? Absolutely. But give us grace to be neither, that we might walk in the Spirit and only do what pleases you, and to finish the work you've called us to do in these last days. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.